Well, if you can't tell, we're starting a new sermon series today that I'm calling God Blank Us. God Blank Us. And so I want you to just think to yourself for a second, what would you fill in the blank with? You don't have to call it out, just, just think for a second. What word, what word would you use to fill in the blank? God Blank us. The reason that we're doing this is because this question, the relationship between God or gods and humanity, has been central to religion since the dawn of civilization. Every religion, in some sense, tries to answer the question what is God or gods or the divine or whatever's up there or out there? What is that relationship with us? And this, is, this has been the question of the ages. And there's been lots of different answers. Lots of different religions and religious systems have different answers to this question, different ways to describe the relationship between God or the gods and the divine and humanity. So today we're going to introduce this series. I'm going to start out by giving you some examples of how other religions and religious systems have answered this question, have gone about uh, this task of describing the relationship between God or gods and humans. And so I'm going to begin by talking about a book, that, a story that I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with, The Epic of Atrahasis. You all read that this week, right? The Epic of Atrahasis is sitting on your bookshelf at home, one of your favorites, I know. So we're just going to talk about it. Uh, the Epic of Atrahasis is an ancient Mesopotamian origin story. An ancient Mesopotamian origin story. Uh, and it, it describes from the ancient Babylonian religion, the ancient Mesopotamian religion, the, the creation of all things as well as the creation of humans. It, it's how the ancient Babylonian religions described, came to understand uh, the relationship of gods and humanity and the creation of humans. Now, you might be familiar with a similar type of story, right, in, in, in your Bible. Who's reading through the Bible in a year this year? How many of you are doing that? So most of you have just finished the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, that's the Hebrew origin story. It describes the creation of humankind from the perspective of the Hebrew Jewish religion. The Epic of Atrahasis does the same thing from the perspective of the Babylonian or Mesopotamian religion. Um, and so I'm going to give you a little background, and then we're, we're going to jump into a little bit of that text to see how they describe the relationship between the gods and humans. Uh, so uh, before there were humans, according to the story, there was a group of gods, and there were higher gods and there were lower gods. And so the lower gods were forced to do the manual labor. In this story, there were high gods and low gods. The low gods were forced to do the manual labor. Here's how the, the epic of Atrahasis begins. When the gods instead of man did the work, bore the loads, the gods' loads was too great. The work too hard, the trouble too much. If you read through the story, part of their work, they were, they were digging out the rivers. That's how we got the rivers, as these lower gods, they dug out the rivers. And, and they were forced to this manual, menial labor. And they, they, they thought that they were working too hard. They were laboring too hard. And so these lower gods, they decide that they're going to rebel against their chief god, whose name was Enlil. Here's how the story goes. Here's what they say. They say, let us face up to our foreman, the prefect, he must take off our heavy burden upon us. And Lil, counselor of the gods, the warrior, come, let us remove him from his dwelling. So these lower gods are going to rebel against their chief god, Enlil, and they're going to overthrow him. It's, it's sort of like a, a divine mutiny. The lower gods are going to overthrow the chief god. They're going to kick him out. 
And so when the upper gods, when the council of upper gods, they, they hear this, they, they get wind of this plan that's about to happen, they have a council. And these, these upper gods, they come together to create a council to figure out what to do to, to stave off this upcoming mutiny. Here's what they decide to do. Here's our solution. Create a mortal that he may bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke. Let him bear the load of the gods. In other words, according to ancient Babylonian religion, we are here to do the work of the gods. The gods didn't want to do the work, so they created humans. We, humanity, according to ancient Babylonian religion, is to be slave labor for the gods. We came to do their work, right? Sounds like a good, you know, well, I I don't want to do it, so I'm going to create somebody else to do it for me, and humans are going to do the work. This was how the ancient Babylonians viewed the creation of humans, how we came about. Uh, but the story doesn't stop there. It gets, it gets way more interesting. Here's what happens next. It says, 600 years passed, and the country was as noisy as a bellowing bull. The god grew relentless at their racket, and Lil had to listen to their noise. So in other words, and Lil, the humans are down there doing the work, but they're too loud. He can't sleep. Now here's what he says. He addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too much. I'm losing sleep over their racket. Fascinating, right? And Lil, this chief god, is losing sleep over the noise that the humans are making. And so what he decides to do is he tries to wipe out humankind three different times. He sends a disease, and then he sends a drought, and then he sends a flood, each time trying to wipe out humankind because they're too noisy and he wants to get some sleep. This is the relationship between the gods and humanity according to ancient Babylonian religion. Uh, And and each time, the reason it's called the Epic of Atrahasis is because each time one of the gods warns a man named Atrahasis that this is going to happen and he figures out a way to escape and that's why humans are still around today according to this ancient Babylonian religion. Um, This is in line with a whole version of religion that we refer to as ancient mythology ancient mythology. You read about this in your Old Testament in the Bible when they, you read about gods like Baal and Asherah and Dagon. Uh, you, you hear about this when you talk about ancient Greek religion or ancient Roman religion with Zeus or Mars or Jupiter. All of the ancient mythology. And the way that ancient mythology sort of works is there were lots of different gods, lots of different gods out there, and each god sort of had their sphere of influence. There were gods that, that were over the weather. There were gods that were over the ocean. There were gods that were over the crops. There were gods that were over war and battle. There were gods for different cities and gods for different regions. Um, and so it was the human's job to serve these gods. And so they had these temples. They would build, build temples. They would build houses for the gods. And they would come to these temples, and they would offer sacrifices. And they literally believed that when they offered sacrifices, they were feeding the gods. Because they believed that if they took care of the gods, then the gods would take care of them probably. Right? The gods would take care of them probably. Um, and, and there are versions of this type of religion in ancient Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Greece, Rome. The gods have different names in each, but they all function in basically the same way. And the relationship between humans and the gods is to sort of take care of them. And so in ancient mythology, the gods were distant, unpredictable, and fickle. The gods were distant, unpredictable, and fickle. There was no loving relationship, right? You would, you would offer sacrifices and feed them in hopes that maybe they would help you win the war, right? Or in hopes that they would help the crops grow. And if you didn't, right, if you ticked off the gods in one way or another, then maybe they wouldn't have their crops grow. Maybe they would send a storm to wipe you out, or maybe you would lose the battle if you didn't take care of the gods. Um, so for ancient mythology, how would you fill in the blank? For ancient mythology, you would say the gods blank us. What would you fill in the blank? 
Let me have something. Blessed, okay. What's another one? No? Okay. What? Work? The gods work us? Yeah. Tolerate us. That's a good one. The gods tolerate us. I thought of, I thought of this one. The gods use us, right? The gods use us. In, in ancient mythology, the relationship between gods and humanity, the gods use us. Tolerate, work, all of those are good, good answers. Um, and so this was a major view of the relationship between the divine and humanity for many thousands of years across lots of different cultures. The gods are just these, these distant beings that have to be appeased through sacrifices, no real relationship other than, you know, take care of them and hopefully they'll take care of us. There are other versions that we move in later to what ancient philosophy. Some of the ancient philosophers, Aristotle and Plato and all those, they, they talk about God a little bit differently. In their vision of the divine, God is sort of this great supreme being, this great supreme being who, who exemplifies everything good and everything beautiful and everything perfect. But, uh, and they refer to this, this great supreme being sometimes as like the unmoved mover or the prime mover. But in ancient philosophy, this supreme being was always unmoved, impersonal, and distant. Unmoved, impersonal, and distant. In other words, you didn't have a relationship with this supreme being. This supreme being sort of uh, just maybe created everything and then like a watchmaker wound up the clock and then just sort of set things in motion and let it play out and didn't really get involved too much in the affairs of humankind. So it wasn't fickle like the gods of ancient mythology. Didn't, you, know, you didn't have to appease this god, but this god wasn't really involved in the everyday aspects of life. It was just sort of created everything and then, and then let it go, wound up the clock and then let it run. Uh, and so in, in this version, we might say something like God ignores us. God ignores us. God is distant. God is supreme. God is just, there's so much, there's such a vast distance between this ultimately everything perfect God and us humans that God just sort of ignores us. There's no real relationship there. In other versions of religion, there were different ideas of gods. There's, there's a version of religion where there's God is like the cosmic judge, and God judges us. He sort of sits up there in his, in his throne room, and he, he weighs our good deeds and our bad deeds, and if we have more good deeds and bad deeds than we pass, we have more bad deeds and good deeds than we fail, and God is, an, is just sort of this cosmic judge. He's not, you know, not necessarily friendly, not necessarily unfriendly, just very fair and impartial and just judges. And this is a version of gods that we encounter in some versions of, of religion. Then we have the cosmic genie in other versions of religion, right? Where God just prospers us. If I have the right amount of faith or if I have the right magic formula, if I say the right thing or if I offer the right sacrifices or if I do enough good works, then I can get this cosmic genie to just bless me and prosper me. And you know, I just got to figure out how to rub the lamp the right way, right? And then, and then I can get God's favor to flow on my life and I'll have all of my needs met and I'll always be healthy and wealthy and wise and I'll have favor on my life if I just figure out the right magical formula to get God to bless me. And so these are, these are all different versions of the relationship between gods and humanity that have been around for thousands and thousands of years, different ways that people have envisioned this. But 2,000 years ago, something happened, and a brand new concept of God was introduced. And it be, we're going to begin to talk about this new concept of God, this new relationship between the divine and humanity by beginning in the Gospel of Matthew. 
the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew you'll find in the New Testament of the Christian Bible, but before it was bound up in the New Testament, it was just a document that was shared in the first century in the Roman province of Judea. And it was this story about this man named Jesus. And it was written, we believe, we're told by early Christians, by a man named Matthew, who we're told was a disciple of Jesus, who followed Jesus around uh, for one to three years and wrote down uh, what he learned from him. And so in this story, we, we learn about this, this new concept of God. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And Matthew's going to introduce us to a brand new concept of God's relationship with people. Here's how he begins. Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All right, this is a familiar story. We're just coming off of Christmas. We've, we've probably read through this story recently. Story goes on, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So we already see some conflict brewing here. We have this young woman named Mary who becomes pregnant. She's engaged to this man named Joseph. Joseph knows he's not the father, right? And so how many of you, if your spouse got pregnant and you knew that it wasn't you, would believe, oh, it's from God, right? Joseph, similarly, right? This, it's a fairly unbelievable story. For jo- that, that doesn't happen every day. If somebody gets pregnant and you're not the one, you sort of know how that happens. And so Joseph, being a just man, thought that the best way to deal with this uh, uh, adultery, is what he assumed it was, was just to disgrace her, it was just to um, divorce her and, and put her away quietly. This was uh, part of their system back then. Uh, So this is what he decided to do. It took some divine intervention to get Joseph to understand what was really happening. So here's what Matthew says happens. But after he had considered this, after he had considered divorcing Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Joseph gets divine confirmation that Mary was telling the truth, that it really was a divine, miraculous conception, uh, and, and it takes an angel telling Joseph this. And so it says, it's okay, Joseph, this, this is really what's happening. You don't need to be afraid. She hasn't stepped out on you in any way. This is, this is my doing. This is the work of the Lord. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The angel goes on. He says this, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. The word Jesus in English comes to us from the Greek word Yesu, or Jesus, which is a translation from the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. Yeshua or Joshua. It's a word that means God saves us. So this is the name of this boy that's going to be born. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua means God saves us. Now this isn't entire. The, the idea of God saving us isn't entirely unique to Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, we see God as a savior God who over and over again steps into the lives of his people and rescues them, right? He rescues them from Egypt. He rescues them from enemies. So, so we see that in Jesus, somehow, in some way, in Jesus, God is going to save us. But it gets even better. The story goes on. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So things get a little complicated here. We have, we have um, the angel referring back to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, and in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah gives a prophecy to the king saying that there's going to be a birth of, of a child that's going to indicate that God is with us and is going to save us, right? But what's happening here is this angel is taking this ancient prophecy and applying it to this new baby that's going to be born of Mary and God and saying somehow, in some way, this baby is going to be Emmanuel, that is, God with us. But how, right? How is this going to work? How is this baby going to be God with us? I don't know. Matthew doesn't say that, right? Matthew doesn't give us all the mechanics. Matthew doesn't say, well, this is exactly how it's going to work. And theologians have been arguing about the specifics of how, how this baby, who's, who, who's, this, who's a human but is also the Son of God, and how all of this works together. And I'm not going to get into that, but, but I'm going to focus on the fact that somehow, in some way, however it works, this little baby born of Mary and God, conceived through the Holy Spirit, is somehow, in some way, God with, with us. And this is brand new. This is a concept of God that we don't really see in any other religion. Now, sure, there are times when gods take on human form and walk around with people, but as we're going to see in the next few weeks, that God with us in Jesus is a brand new understanding of how the divine, who has always been believed to be so distant and so unpredictable and so fickle or, or who ignores us, now enters in among the people, God, with us. So we're going to skip over now and we're going to learn a little bit more from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. The Gospel of John is another one of those ancient documents that uh, the, the early Christians tell us was written by John, another one of Jesus' apostles. Uh, written probably near the end of his life, reflecting back uh, on all that he had learned and wanting to leave something for future followers of Jesus, he tells us his version of how things went following Jesus. But he begins in John chapter 1 with this just beautiful and, and complex prologue. And we're just going to read through some of it. It's, uh, John chapter 1 is one of the most theologically rich but also challenging passages in the entire New Testament. And I'm not going to try to unpack the whole thing but we're going to focus on this idea of God with us. So here's how John begins his story of Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Which leads to a question, well, what is the Word, right? What is the Word? And the, word, um, the, the Greek word that's translated word here is the Greek word logos, the Greek word logos. And it has a fascinating history. And it was understood lots of different ways by lots of different groups of people in ancient times. Um, it, was, it was understood by the, by the Greeks as this um, embodiment of, of, of wisdom, of reason. And it was, in a sense, the logos was, in a sense, an embodiment of God to certain Greek philosophers. To, to Hebrews, they would, they would, to Jews, they would hear this and they would think back to Genesis where in the beginning God speaks, right? And things come into being through the word of God. Things come into being and into creation. So, so the word is some sort of manifestation of God, the power, the creative power of God. And so John takes this concept that's familiar to Greeks and familiar to Jews 
used, but in a different way. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but also the Word somehow was God. And he goes on, he says, the Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word. And this was something that Greeks and Jews could sort of agree on, right? They believed that the Logos, this divine reason and power, or, or this, this Word of God was, was a creative power. And everybody could sort of agree on this. And John takes this concept that they both uh, understand differently, but also sort of agree on. Um, and he says, everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. So somehow this word, this logos, that's identified with and connected with God, John takes this concept, and we're going to skip forward now to verse 14. He's going to tell us something absolutely unique, absolutely fascinating. He says in verse 14, the word became what? Flesh. This, whatever this word, whatever this logos is that was, you know, meant something to the Greeks and something to the Jews, this, this divine power, whatever this divine logos, this, this word is that, it, that was with God and, and was God, whatever it was, somehow it became flesh. Became flesh. Theologians refer to this event as the incarnation. The incarnation. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what incarnation is incarnation? Right? What incarnation is incarnation? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some words here to help understand what this, this, this theological concept, you can use this to impress your friends later, okay? Uh, how many of you know what a carnivore is? A carnivore. What is a carnivore? Meat eater. Carnivore comes from the Latin carnis plus the Latin vorere, which means to eat meat, to eat flesh, right? Carne, carnis means meat, vorere means eat, carnivore eats flesh. How many of you know what carnitas are? Who's gone to a Mexican restaurant lately? We've gotten carnitas, right? Carnitas is shredded meat. Little, it, literally, in, in Spanish, it means little meats. You know, you get shredded meat, it's little meats. Carne, the, this root carne means meat. How many of you ever had chili con carne? Right? What does that mean? It means chili with Chili with meat. That's what chili con carne means. So in other words, in the incarnation, what we see, we have, it's the word, the logos, con carne. It's the word with meat. Whatever this divine word, this power is, puts on some meat, some flesh. It's the word, the logos, with meat. That's the incarnation. This is this is this has never happened before in history. There's, there's no other religion that, that takes this divine, this, this divine power, word that is with God and is God in some sense, and, and however that is, and takes on human flesh becomes a human. But John doesn't stop there. John doesn't stop there. He says this. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling among us. The Greek literally means pitched his tent among us. This, however, whatever this logos is and however it is and, and is with and is God, takes on flesh, puts on meat, and pitches his tent among us. I love how Eugene Peterson phrases this in his paraphrase, The Message. He says, The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. God with us. So as we're going to see in this series in the next few weeks, we're going to see that when the Word made flesh moves into the neighborhood, this is the very same Jesus that Matthew tells us was somehow in some way God with us. And when God in Jesus, the Word with meat, moves into the neighborhood, 
everything begins to change. And the relationship between God and humanity changes in a way that has never been understood before. And Jesus comes and he shows us as representative of God with us. And however way that works, shows us that God is with us and cares for us and loves us. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to explore this concept of God in us through the lens of the incarnation. What it means for, for God in Jesus to pitch his tent, to move into the neighborhood among us. And how this totally flips upside down these ancient ideas of how God or the divine relates with his people. So next week, we're going to explore in depth this concept of God with us. This was just an introduction to what your appetite don't miss next week. Lord, I thank you for the incarnation. I thank you that somehow, in some way, through this crazy story of a young woman and the Holy Spirit and how all of that came together and this little baby, this, this whole logos becoming, putting on some meat represents, God, that you have decided to be with us somehow. Lord, there, there are people who have viewed your relationship in lots of these different ways. So, sometimes we, we think we've been taught that you are distant, that you, you, you have no interest or influence in our lives. So, some visions of, of you, we've been taught that, that we have to just do all of the right things just so that you don't strike us down. We just have to pacify you so that you don't hurt us, that you might take care of us. Lord, we've been taught that you're just a judge who just sits up in heaven and just judges us and isn't involved in our lives. We've been taught that if we just have the right formula that you'll just give us everything. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that in Christ you have established a brand new conception of what it means for you to be in relationship with us. Lord, over the course of this series, I pray that we would grasp anew, grasp with freshness and clarity your relationship with us and that we would find comfort, that we would find hope, that we would find acceptance and belonging and power. So Lord, I just, I lift this series up to you and I pray that you would transform us because you came to be with us. I thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.